This is episode 239 with strength and conditioning coach, marathoner, and author, Angelo Gingerelli. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features a collegiate strength and conditioning coach on how to best structure resistance training for endurance runners. Angelo Gingerelli is with us to explore movement assessments, common movement dysfunctions, foundational exercises, why there is no off-season, anti-rotation exercises, and more. Now, if you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on effective strategies to stay healthy, how to use a foam roller, my favorite strength exercises, and a lot more. You can see all that at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset, plus all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of the most reputable blood testing companies in the world. They test dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be hampering your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal ranges. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com STRENGTHRUNNING. The code is strength running with no space, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strength running. We're also supported by Roll Recovery, our newest sponsor. They're a Boulder, Colorado-based company that makes innovative massage and recovery tools that are so good, many are FDA-approved medical devices. They've consulted physical therapists and elite athletes to make the highest quality recovery products that I've ever seen. And... They didn't write that. I did because I really do think that these are the best foam rollers and other recovery tools that I've personally ever seen. And they have a very unique design that makes them not only really easy to use, but effective and quite attractive. I don't mind having my foam roller lying around the house when Frankly, it looks like a piece of artwork. You can see that foam roller, which is the R4 body roller, at rollrecovery.com. You can also listen to an interview with their co-founder, pro runner Adriana Nelson, in episode 236. All right, let's thank our podcast reviewer of the week, Coomzy76, who said, Brilliant podcast. I'm pretty new to running, and these podcasts give you great insight into every aspect of running. I took how important strength training is, and I just clocked a half marathon PB of 141. Wow. First, congrats on your half marathon PB, Coomzy, and thank you for noticing that the Strength Running Podcast focuses on all aspects of running. No matter your goals, your age, your fitness or talent level, or how new you are to the sport, 
My goal is to help you. All right, our guest today is Angelo Gingerelli, a strength and conditioning coach who works at Seton Hall University. He's been working in this field for two decades, and he has experience working with kids, collegiate athletes, and professional athletes. He's also a marathoner, the rare athlete who came from a powerlifting background only to catch the marathon bug. 26.2 miles will do that. He's also the co-author of the new book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. We're going to bust some myths about strength for endurance runners today, talk about some interesting aspects of strength training, and get the collegiate coach's perspective on strength, endurance training, and more. And stay tuned for next week when I announce our newest training program for runners focused on, you guessed it, strength training. If you're looking for an end-to-end system that helps runners get strong while preventing injuries and prioritizing power, all in the comfort of your own home, you're going to love it. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Angelo Gingerelli. Angelo, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, well, congrats on your new book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. This is right up our alley here on the Strength Running Podcast. I'm probably, you know, the running coach who is most known for promoting strength training as a critical part of runner's training. So there are quite a few interesting components of your book that I want to go into more detail about, um, you know, from everything from specific exercises that you recommend to big picture ideas. And I'd love to start with maybe something that runners might think about before they even step foot in a weight room. And that's on this idea of a movement assessment. Now, I've never actually, uh, that's actually not true. I was going to say I've never had a movement assessment done. I've done one FMS, a functional movement screen. But I was curious what your thoughts are on these movement assessments, because I admittedly see the value in them, but I've talked to a lot of coaches and physical therapists who don't really think that they really tell you too much about, you know, how an athlete really is able to move in a more sports specific context. So just broadly speaking, can you talk to movement assessments and your thoughts on them? Uh, sure. And the book was co-written by Dr. R.J. Borges, who's an athletic trainer. I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade, right? And he would probably be the better person to answer this question, but I'm going to do the best I can with it. And I think what we see you know, 10 years ago, the FMS was the biggest thing out there. There's a bunch of different offshoots of it and different variations of ways to do a movement screen. And in my opinion, what happened over time in our profession was people were doing movement screens because they thought they should do it to kind of check a box, right? And they weren't really doing a whole lot to get better at those tests, at those movement patterns. And they weren't really showing their athletes and clients to carry over from the, the FMS in the lab to them running, jumping, swimming, whatever it might be, right? I think it, where we are at today, we kind of realize that we need to move properly, particularly in endurance events. Where we're doing the same movement you know, hundreds of thousands of times in the course of a day, and millions of times in the course of a year. Just one very minor inefficiency done a million times is a massive amount of inefficiency. I think we're going to agree on that, right? So I think we, to some extent, the, the, the movement screen kind of kind of trend was everything in a lab. Can you do an inline lunge? Can you do an overhead squat? And now I think we're in a place as a profession, we're kind of looking more at, you know, there's a value to those movements, but can we pass an eyeball test? When we run, do we look like we're moving efficiently? What does our, our hip flexion look like? What's our mobility look like? And we're we able to get from point A to B in an efficient manner. So I think the movement screens kind of fell out of favor because people weren't seeing a real carryover from 
great at the FMS, to great at whatever sport they were trying to play. And I think a good practitioner in our profession is able to look at an FMS score, whatever movement screen you do, and then watch film or in a second person playing, running, swimming, biking, whatever it might be, and then put that together into a program to get better at the things we view as deficiencies or inefficiencies in movement, right? I think we saw, I've been a college swim coach for over 20 years, and what we saw was head coaches, sport coaches heard the word movement assessment, decided everybody in the program needed to do it, and then we evaluated everybody and then didn't do anything to get better at the test. So we kind of a waste of time at that point, right? I think a better way to do it is pick out what, what movements and movement patterns you think are important and valuable, evaluate where you are, and then try to get better at those movement patterns and, and movements, for lack of a better term, as you go through your training with the whole goal of being more efficient movement when you're competing. Yeah. And that reminds me of when I got my functional movement screen back in, I think it was 2010 or 2011, maybe in the 2012 time period, somewhere around there. Exactly that happened. I I did the FMS, got my results back and then just kind of said, okay, that's interesting. And then went on with my training and never actually incorporated any interventions that would have addressed some of, you know, the actual movement problems that were evident from that screen. So it sounds like a movement assessment is done and, and it's really only valuable when it then impacts the training afterward. So you're actually addressing some of the, the weaknesses or you know, areas of limitation. Uh, what are some of the things that you find are common among runners that need to be addressed? Okay, so the overwhelming majority of runners I deal with between 18 and 22, they're college athletes, right? They've been running from about 11 or 12 years old fairly seriously. And they're very, they have very limited exposure to strength and conditioning, right? To strength training in general. So overall, we're looking at a very, a very inflexible, immobile body for the most part, right? If they're runners, they're just doing that same motor pattern over and over and over again. And they've really in their life never squatted, never lunged, never played a sport that involved any kind of lateral moving or jumping or, you know, your football, basketball, soccer, baseball type sports. And they're very, to use a cliche, one-dimensional athletically. Right. They kind of they move from point A to point B in a straight line and their body might be really good for that, but really bad for other things. Right. The other thing we see is we have done some training, traditionally very weak upper bodies in college runners in some sweeping generalization, um, very weak posterior chains and then very inflexible um, from right from the, the toe to the head, basically um, all the way down. Kind of seeing those inflexibilities and, and, and lack of mobility that I think, especially at, with a younger person, if you address that early and earlier you get on top of that and make the person more mobile, more durable, more resistant to injury, that running career is going to go better longer, right? And I think so many young athletes, are, they, are, they don't think long-term. I, I, when I was 15, I didn't think long-term either, right? I want to get through the next race, the next season, the next workout. But now you know, we're, we're older, I'm in my 40s. I want to be doing this until I'm 60 or 70, right? And I realize a big part of that is it can't just be lay it all on the line, be laid out for a week after a marathon and never really do another one again. I want to run a marathon in 2022. That's great, but I want to do it again in 2027, maybe, or whenever, you know, as long as I possibly can. And then, you know, to use the cliche, the, you know, the human body is your vehicle. You got to get the oil changed. You got to put the right fuel in. You got to service that vehicle. If you're going to put it through hundreds of miles a week sometimes, it's really unfair if you don't treat the vehicle right to ask it to keep treating you right and competing as you move on to middle and older age, in my opinion. Oh, Angelo, I feel like you're talking about me from the 2002 through 2006 time period when I was in college, because I, I felt I exactly that. I felt like you're, you're just describing me in a nutshell where, you know, I 
specialized in cross country and track as a high school athlete. Then I went to college and I did the same thing, ran cross country, indoor track, outdoor track, three season runner for eight years straight. And I felt like we did a great job at building the engine. And I had this monster aerobic powerhouse engine. I could go run 85 miles a week and run workouts that the general population would be very impressed by. But I was very prone to injury, and we didn't really spend a lot of time in the weight room. I think I did have an advantage in that I was a basketball player before I was a runner. So came from a sport with a lot of lateral movement, a little bit more of a ballistic plyometric nature to it with a lot of jumps and stops and starts and things like that. But, you know, for the runners who don't have that background, you know, I think some of these problems are only exacerbated. And uh, I think the the concept of of mobility is one that's interesting to me because I think you get a lot of mobility from strength training and you know, when I talk to my runners about mobility, I'm very frequently talking about your training. What are you doing on a daily basis? Because we're not talking about static stretching. You know, you're not going to improve your mobility by touching your toes before a run. Can you talk a little bit more about the mobility benefits of strength training specific to runners? Sure. So one thing we did in the book that I think is super valuable is we identified six foundation exercises and we decided that whether you're a runner, swimmer, cyclist, or triathlete, these six exercises should be done in some capacity by just about everybody, right? So we identified them early on as the squat, the lunge, the hip hinge, the upper body push, the upper body pull, and the hip bridge, right? And that is that if you can master those six exercises, those six movement patterns, and, and do a squat to parallel a little bit below, do a good lunge with the upper body vertical, back knees about touching the ground, do a push-up or a pull-up and with good technique, elbows pinched in, shoulder girdle where you want it. That's going to carry over into your racing, right? If you can keep that, that, that motor pattern strong and maintain good posture, which will lead to good breathing, will lead to better racing, right? And we, we, the joke we were making all along was if you take a camera out to the starting line of a race, everybody's running mechanics look pretty good the first mile or two, right? Take that same camera, get those same people at the finish line, and almost nobody looks the same, Right? So I think we can get more mobile and stronger at the same time and put our get better at putting our body in various positions and being strong in those positions. The end of our race, you're going to look more at the beginning of our races, which we think are going to, going to lead to, number one, better health, less injury, and then better finishes, not only for the individual race, but through the course of a career. So I think the one thing is, you know, runners in general, I, only, I come from a unique place. You kind of ran, you see you ran high school and college cross country. I didn't. I come from a power sports background. I was a power lifter for a long time, Olympic lifter for a short time after that. And I got into marathoning in my 30s, right? So and now I've been super into it the last 10 years. I want to continue it for another 10 at least. But I I realize now I'll go out and run to people. I've brought a couple of local groups in New Jersey. And there's people I'm running with that are in their 40s that have never done a, not even a bodyweight squat, right? Never really thought about doing pull-ups or anything overhead or just kind of moving the way people in other sports think is a natural way to move. Right. So I, I understand running super important. Mileage is absolutely important if you're going to have an aerobic capacity and compete. But kind of like, I like your version of it where that aerobic capacity is the engine and your arms, legs, hips, shoulder girdle. That's kind of like the, the wheels and the carburetor and other parts of the car that have to work if you're going to get from point A to point B as fast as possible and do it over a long period of time. Yeah, I really like your your <laughs> instruction to take a camera and take a picture of people at the beginning of a race and the end of the race. I'm always saying that uh, if you want to see the the high point of human carnage, 
go to mile 25 of a marathon because this same concept is taken to an extreme at the end of a marathon. And you'll see that, like you said, almost nobody is running the same that they were at the beginning. And, uh, you know, the, the less competitive you are, likely the more your form is just absolutely falling apart. So I, I went through a pretty rough transition period. When I first got into racing, I would get these emails a day or two after the race where they give you thumbnails of the finish line, click on them and buy them if you wanted a big picture, right? Literally 100% of the time I got these emails, I looked at the tiny thumbnail, like, who's that loser? I click on it. It was always me. And I'm like, <laughs> I really looked that bad at the finish. I felt great. And then uh, and that kind of led to the idea of me, of, kind of in a, in a roundabout way, the book and trying to help people, myself included, finish races a little bit stronger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's always great because the thumbnail of that email, it always tells you whether or not you actually want the photo, because if they get yes. you in the wrong point of your stride or you're falling apart at mile 24 of the marathon, you're not going to want those photos. Yeah, I want you know, thank you and shout out to all those photographers. They do a great job and that's a long day for them, but just send me the good pictures. Don't send me the bad ones. Yeah. Photoshop me like a mile up the road or something. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Angelo, you mentioned uh, mobility. We've been talking a little bit about mobility and how that can be really helpful for runners. There is a difference between mobility and flexibility. Can you talk about that? Right. I think that's where a lot of runners and kind of lay people get get lost in the, the nomenclature, if you will, right? So if you look at flexibility is the ability to elongate a muscle. That's kind of what you said before. We could sit down, touch our toes, old school presence, physical fitness test, sit and reach, Right. I think there's some value to that kind of flexibility, right? Particularly after workout, elongating a muscle and keeping it elongated longer, there's some value to that. I think a bigger value is how does that muscle work through a range of motion and actual functional movement pattern, right? So you might be able to touch your toes and, and look like you're doing Cirque du Soleil when you're doing a stationary hamstring stretch. But if you can't translate that into a squat, a lunge, a good running stride, in my opinion, that's kind of useless, right? So I think you got to hit both. I, in general, I like to do mobility work pre-workout and then kind of the static stretch flexibility stuff post-workout sometimes when I feel like it's necessary. But I think developing that mobility and developing the ability to squat the parallel, do a good lunge, do a good push, do a good pull, um, do even, even a push-up with your shoulder girdle in the right place when your elbow's pinched in and do a proper push-up, which a lot of runners can't do. And it's a, it's a really weird thing to me because to me, when I was in the weight room and doing powerlifting, Olympic lifting, Run, running was such a foreign concept. Like, how do you run 10 miles? That sounds impossible. But then you go out the runs on people, and there's people I know that run, run you know, 75, 85 plus miles a week that are terrified of a squat rack. And I'm like, no, 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 you're running in snow and ice and hills. It's not the lap pull down machine to not strike fear in your heart, right? Um, and it's, it's weird. I feel like they're one of the, the shortcomings of my, my field, strength and ninja coaching, maybe kind of yours as a running coach as well. We kind of view them as two completely different worlds, right? You, weightlift or you run competitively. And I think in general, guys like us have decided a long time ago at this point, there's value for both, right? Could an Olympic power or a powerlifter do go at some aerobic capacity for overall health? Yeah, probably. Should you run a marathon before the, uh, the U.S. Open Olympic lifting meet? No. Same thing with marathoners, right? I, I like squatting. I like Olympic lifts. I like push jerk and all that stuff. Do I do super heavy reps the day before a marathon? No. But do I find a way to periodize it and make it happen over the course of a year as best I can? Angelo, I feel like you're calling me out for my uh, my fear of the lat pulldown machine as, a, <laughs> as someone who, who admittedly doesn't love the weight room. I'm just someone who recognizes its value for distance runners. And 
you know, hearing you talk about mobility, it, it seems like mobility is more like the ability to go through the proper range of motion for certain fundamental movements, the fundamental hip hinge movement, or even the running stride or the squat, or you were talking about the push up as well. And, you know, I, it, it kind of just lends me back to this idea that the best way to improve your mobility is to improve the training that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about, about that idea and, and whether or not, you know, you see a runner who comes in who, who doesn't have good mobility. Do you work on the, their mobility or do you just put them through a good strength and conditioning program? You make sure that they're doing their form drills and, you know, all the things that we do as athletes to be able to move better. Great, great question. So if there's a real dysfunction where a lack of mobility is hindering their ability to do the activities of daily living, at that point, we're going to go to see an athletic trainer and address some of that stuff on a training table and get them back to normal functioning, right? If that lack of mobility is a little less severe, it's just affecting their, let's say, running in the situation, my attitude is kind of what you said, let's attack it in the training, right? So if we have you know, poor hip mobility and we can only say do a quarter squat with a bar on our back, can we grab a med ball and do a, a med ball squat? Can we grab a dumbbell and do a goblet squat? Can we do a box squat? Can we make the right changes to those six core foundation exercises and get some version of them in with full range of motion? And my idea is always, I'm going to meet you as a coach. I'm not going to be the guy screaming at you because you can't do a back squat, right? I'm going to, we're going to get a light dumbbell. We're going to go body weight. We might get a, a dowel. It's like a broomstick kind of thing, piece of PVC pipe, and start working on a progression that's going to get us to be able to do those movements with good mobility, right? And that's that's one of the things that it's, it's kind of the, what came first, the chicken or the egg. Or some runners intimidate to go to the weight room because they don't know how to do those things. Or the people that are in the weight rooms not confident to teach people from square one how to do those things, right? So my thing is like doing that thing, squatting is a great exercise, right? It is absolutely not for everybody the first time they're in a gym. So can we take a look at what you're doing, figure out where your tightness are, where your weaknesses are, and give you a progression to get from not able to do a body weight squat, maybe you don't do a squat with some resistance and really put some hypertrophy and strength on your lower extremity. But then the biggest thing is finding where a person needs to start and you know putting the, the stop trying to put a round peg in a square hole, find the square peg for the square hole, start at that square one, and then have a plan to progress from square one to square two to square three, right? Um, one thing we did in the book with those six core exercises is we have a pretty extensive regression and progression for each exercise, right? So we realize a squat might not be for everybody, but can we start with the most simple being a body weight squat, then progress all the way to like a front squat, overhead squat, and we kind of give you the steps to do in between there. Because you realize two things. Number one, day one in the weight room, these exercises are not realistic for everybody, right? And then the weight, the nature of endurance training, every day that exercise might not be realistic for you. So, for example, if your training program says four sets of 10 heavy back squats, but then some, you know, end up running 10 miles of hills, maybe we got to change that to a goblet squat, a dumbbell squat, maybe even a leg press type exercise that day with the idea that we're going to get back on the horse and when we're not as sore, not as beat up from the run, change it back to a regular back squat. But one thing that we found early on, and we're just trying to be realistic about this, us both being endurance athletes, in general, and to see if you agree with us on this, endurance athletes are, they, they lack time, they have too little time, right, because training takes a lot of time, plus you have outside lives, and they have too much fatigue, right? If you're covering any kind of mileage, you're fatigued all the time. So I think what happens a lot of time at the college level, a strength coach that works mainly with, say, football and basketball is screaming at these cross-country kids, you got to squat, you got to clean, you got to deadlift. And that kid just did an insane workout, right? 
So my, I would say the biggest thing I did coaching wise after after I was done with school was start running, started running and realizing what that was like and what the track kids were going through, and I became a much better coach because of that. And now I understand that yeah, let's uh, like deadlifts might be an important exercise, but maybe not today. Maybe we got to do a kettlebell swing or something today, and we'll make our body feel good for the next workout and not take. I think the other thing that, that where endurance athletes in general get tripped up. The weight room is hard. If you're doing it right, you should be being sore. It should be beating your body up a little bit. If you're really making progress, you should feel it the next day or two, right? The problem is if you, if you don't plan that properly and it ruins your next one or two endurance workouts, you're not going to want to go back and do it again. Fair? So my idea is let's look at what you're doing training-wise. Let's look at your miles. Let's look at when your long runs are, when your tempo runs are, all of that stuff and find days we can plug and play some resistance training sessions so we get better and not keep getting worse and more beat up and feeling terrible as the week, the month, the season goes on. And that's kind of the, the reality of the sport we're involved in and we know and love. But we got, I think strength coaches in general have to do a better job of meeting track coaches, cross-country coaches, and their athletes in the middle and making it work with their season. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of uh, something that I like to do with runners who have no experience with strength training, because I think you're exactly right that a lot of the times, you know, runners will either make the workout too hard, harder than it really has to be, or they're doing it in a way that might negatively impact their running. And then, you know, as soon as they bomb a long run or they can't finish a workout because they're so sore from strength training, they're just less likely to actually do it. And I like to see runners actually do some fairly easy strength workouts at the very beginning. Let's just establish the habit at first. Let's just get used to getting into the weight room or, you know, even if you're doing these workouts at home with some simple implements and tools that you might have, you know, in your at-home collection of of strength training equipment. And that I think is a much more effective approach at getting runners to more consistently strength train because you're starting really easy. It's not in being done in a way that's going to negatively impact their running. And then as soon as they start seeing some benefits to that, they've built up the habit. There hasn't been any, you know, negative side effects with their running and they're just more likely to continue it. And, And I think that's really, really helpful. No question. Real quick, you mentioned early on in our conversation whether you know we took we took big picture stuff and little little picture stuff and trying to address both of them. I think the one thing, if you're, if you're coaching at any level, if you're listening, you have to get the athlete to buy into the value of resistance training. And once that happens, then you can kind of play around with sets, reps, exercises, all that kind of stuff. But if that buy-in is not there early on, everything else is going to be an uphill battle. You can agree with me on that. So kind of make it you know, off tonight. You want a pizza. Now, once you decide you're going to have a pizza, you can decide I'm calling Domino's, Papa John's, Little Caesar, whatever it is. Make your own pizza. There's a million ways you can do that. But when you kind of drift away from the idea of a pizza, now that gets way out of hand, right? You can't make the same decisions anymore. The first thing we do with coaches is you really sell the value of being stronger, being more mobile, being more resistant. And then with the idea of we present in this book, this is the best way we think to do it in 2022, right? In two years, hopefully I'll know more stuff, but write a better book in two or three years about a better way to do it. But this is what I found to work for myself and my athletes. And hopefully you guys find the same thing. But I'm sure you're, you're doing stuff with your athletes that maybe it's a little more individualized. Maybe it's it's different foundation movements, whatever it might be. But I think as long as we're, we're kind of selling and instilling the importance of a stronger body is a better body and a faster body, I think we're both speaking the same language and doing the same thing at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. I've been beating that drum for years. And and I think the results that runners get after implementing a consistent strength training routine 
are undeniable. And, and once you actually commit yourself to it, you know, I, I don't have to sell the idea of strength training as hard, you know, runners start convincing themselves that that strength training is so critical. Now, there was, you know, some there, there was an idea that you were talking about earlier that I want to touch on real quickly. And this, that was these, the six fundamental movements that you have in here. And you mentioned how you have pretty extensive regression and progression for each exercise. So, you know, you can make it very easy and you can make it much more difficult based on, you know, where your ability lies. Is it true that those fundamental exercises, those six movements are almost a form of movement assessment themselves. So a good starting point might be, let me actually go through these exercises and then you can decide where you're at in this spectrum. And you you can then decide, okay, do I need to make this exercise easier and regress to a, a more approachable version of the exercise or is this too easy for me? And I can, I can add in an extra dynamic movement or I can do something to make it more challenging. And it seems like those six exercises by themselves are a fairly decent movement assessment themselves. Fair, completely fair. And I think there's a couple ways you can look at that. One, if you're coaching and you're dealing with, let's say, for example, it's the first day of your high school cross country season, right? Your dynamic warm-up can very easily be can consist of bodyweight squats, bodyweight lunges, bodyweight RDL or hip hinge, right? All the things we have in the, in the core exercise. And you can kind of eyeball kids right away and be like, that kid, you know, runner A is going to be able to do a back squat today in the weight room we go. Runner B is not not getting that depth on the bodyweight squat. There's no way you can put a bar on his or her back. Let's maybe give them a dumbbell and a box, do a goblet squat to a box kind of thing and regress it a little bit, right? Um, the other thing you can do if you're a runner, you can kind of gauge your daily mobility in those same things, right? So me personally, I do a workout, I do a general, you know, jump rope kind of thing. And I'll start going through those movements and I'll realize, oh, well, my squats are kind of tight today. Maybe I got to take a break at foam roll, do some extra mobility work before I get under a bar in the rack. And that's just the thing as you get older, you kind of learn your body a little bit better. And, you know, it's, you know, maybe on, on Monday of a week, your squats are feeling great. Then you have a long run on Tuesday, Wednesday, you, you train again by Thursday. It's, it's the late day again. Your hips are kind of tight. Your hamstrings are kind of tight. That doesn't mean, in my opinion, you shouldn't not train that day. You should maybe take a few extra minutes during your warm up, foam roll, uh, percussion gun, whatever you're going to use and get your body ready to feel good to do it right. But I think running is such an individual sport to some extent. Right? You got to know your body. You got to know how your body feels. And I think doing that, you know, not maybe daily, every other day, kind of kind of mini movement assessment will kind of give you the, uh, I guess you have the map already is the program you're going to do, but this will tell you how fast or slow you can take that day and how you have to progress or regress from, from day to day. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do like the idea of using some light strength training as a dynamic warm up because it can offer that window into not only your mobility but also your fatigue levels. You know, if you're getting ready for a workout and you're doing some, you know, backwards lunges and you're you're swaying all over the place and you you don't have any balance, well, you, you might have some extra nervous system fatigue that you're going to carry into that workout and that might impact how you approach that workout. So there's a lot of different reasons to do that dynamic warm up, not just for mobility, not just for a window into your fatigue levels, actually for the warm up benefits as well. So there's a lot of things to like there. Uh, Angela, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a section in your book that says that there are no off seasons. What do you mean by that? Okay. So what I kind of took from the decades in college athletics, I kind of took that and kind of molded it to our, your typical endurance athlete, adult endurance athlete, right? So we broke the year down into four seasons and none of them, well, 
I guess one is going to be called the off season, but the idea during that, that off season, let's say for example, we live in New Jersey where I live in, in the Northeast. There's not a lot of races in the winter, right? It's just too cold. There's too much snow. So for, for us up here, the off season quote unquote would be that like say November after the you know, New York city marathons in November until maybe March when races really start happening again. Right. We recommend doing during that period. That's the time you really want to try new things. Because if you're sore, it's not going to really affect crazy long runs your competitive season that much. And now it all seems a good time to try strength and conditioning for the first time and see how your body feels after a decent squat workout, a decent lunge workout, how you feel after a couple sets of RDLs. And then still keep doing your endurance work, but now's the time to try new things, right? Uh, as we get to our spring, there's more races offered. People start ramping up their mileage. Refer that as building a base that, that couple weeks to a couple months. And now your mileage is really going up on a week-to-week basis. And we're acknowledging just the way the human body works. You can't just keep progressively always doing more. So if we're running more miles, maybe we're going to pump the brakes a little bit on the weight training, pull back a day or two, uh, regress some of the movements, cut back on some of our volume or intensity, because those, those miles and those long work have become more important, right? Uh, after that, we have our peak mileage period, which is the most we're running during any time of the year. So we're leading up to your A event. And during this period, we'll again, we'll, we'll, we'll scale back to the training a little bit. And then you have the taper for your big event every year. How many, you know, it's up to you how many times you go through this in the corner of a year, but make it simple. And we would only recommend doing the taper. If you're tapering your miles by 20%, taper the weight room by 20%. So if you're doing sets of 10, drop it down to sets eight. If you're lifting 100 pounds, drop it down to 80. Uh, one thing we see at the college setting too much is swim and track coaches, quote unquote, taper by cutting out the weight room, right? And my opinion is if we're going to look at what happened in the weight room as a form of mobility training, which we both agreed we're going to, why would we stop that completely when we get to the most important events of the year, right? So, no, we're not setting new maxes and stacking 45s on the bar when we're tapering, but we're going through the motions, doing things that made us successful all season long and just scaling back the intensity in the weight room the same way we did on the track. Yeah, I love this. And w- one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you is because you are a college coach. And so you're bringing me back to a lot of college concepts and the schedule of college athletics that I was sort of, I sort of grew up in that. And I, it really resonates with me. And this idea that there's no off season, I think is, is really important because, you know, I talk to a lot of adult runners who do take a month or two or three, or maybe even more time off from running. And there's really no formal training or anything like that. And it's always so difficult to get back into things when, you know, you have these competitive goals, you want to race, you actually want to to do well in those races, but coming off a, a three month break from, from any kind of training that just makes it much more difficult. And I remember when I was in college, you know, my cross country coach, he was very adamant that, look, running is not a sport that you're going to do for six months out of the year. Running is a lifestyle. And in fact, we weren't even allowed to run cross country if we hadn't also run track. So it was it was this very strict sort of idea that, you know, if you want to be a good runner, if you want to be competitive, if you want to see what your potential might be, we really need to make this a regular thing that you're going to be doing most weeks out of the year. And this idea that an off season means that you are off from exercise just wasn't part of the conversation whatsoever. Right. A couple of things on that real quick. I think we talk about this forever, obviously, but I feel like in, in the current world we're in now, maybe it's social media, I'm not sure. There's two camps on this. One is that the minute my competitive season's over, I'm punching the clock. I'm out. I'm going on vacation. I'm not doing anything. So I got to show up for the first practice next year. Right. 
And I think we can agree from a performance and injury perspective, that is not the way to do it. You can't go from zero miles to 50 miles a week the first day you show up on campus for cross-country workouts, right? The other side of the spectrum is I think too many people are on now is the, the yelling on top of those, there is no off-season. I go hard every day. I run 12 miles every day, no matter what the, the weather, how I feel, whatever. I think in reality, like a lot of things, it's got to be somewhere in the middle, right? Is an off-season and recovery after a long run or something super important? Yes. Should we sit down on the couch for three months and watch Netflix nonstop? No. Can we do some other things during that quote-unquote off-season that's going to make our body better for when we come back? In my opinion, lifting weights should definitely be part of your off-season, right? But you can also make an argument swimming could be a part of it, cycling could be a part of it. There's a bunch of other things we can do and be physically active and get ourselves our body ready for the next time. So I understand the point of I'm tired of running. I need a break. I get that. But I don't think you need a break from all physical activity. Maybe you need a week or two off running a lot of miles. But let's do a bunch of other things that we get that mileage back up in a month or two. Our body's better than it was when we stopped, right? If you look at the way our body works and where we work physiologically, we're always getting older, right? So our body's deteriorating because of that. And if you don't do anything for several months at a time, your body, the deterioration is accelerated. So I think you got to find a way to get some kind of movement in. And if, if you're burnt out from running, I completely understand that. But do something else during those quote-unquote off months so when you come back, you come back at a better level than you left. For sure. And, and, I, and I think, you know, like with almost anything, the moderate position is the correct one here. You know, we, we don't want to keep training hard every day of the year, and we don't want to take two months off of training. You know, the strategic break from sports-specific exercise, I think, is really important. So if you get your final race of the season, take a week or two off, you know, seven to 14 days. Five days if you're feeling really frisky, although that makes me a little uncomfortable. I like a full week just for psychological reasons. And then, of course, once you get back into training, it can be easy. It doesn't have to be hard training right at the beginning, especially if we're talking about that summer phase of base training. And, and I love that you're talking about trying new things during this offseason because this really resonates with me because I found whenever I did this during that base training season, that offseason when I was in college, you know, I experimented with uh, running a lot of my runs on hilly trails instead of the road. I found that that was more beneficial for me as a cross-country athlete. I experimented with running more miles than I ever had before. That was very beneficial. I experimented with doing a little bit of barefoot strides, barefoot drills, just a little bit to strengthen my feet and lower legs. I felt that was really beneficial for my, my injury risk. So there's a lot of things I started incorporating that you know, needed, I needed that extra time for exploration that I got during the off season when I wasn't worrying about the brutal workouts, when I wasn't worrying about the races happening almost every week. And, and I think taking that time away from racing, not necessarily time away from training can really be a period of growth for runners. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think so many runners, I, I, I think, can argue wisely, but we identify as runners and that puts blinders on us and we think that's what we do and that's all we're going to do, right? When in reality, there's never been more ways to be physically active than right now, right? There's, a, off the top of my head, there's CrossFit, there's Soul Cycle, there's running, there's swimming, there's biking, there's adult rec league sports, there's co-ed sports, there's a million ways to be physically active that's not just running miles, right? And I think to some extent, even if you're the most gung-ho, dedicated runner at 20 years old, at some point, your, your passion is going to wane for most people, right? So my thing is try some other things. Do something else. For me, being a lifter, the more, the, the biggest thing I step out of my, out of my, my shell is I running 5Ks. 
with a group of people you know, 10 years ago and it changed my life. It, it, that kind of became my new identity, right? Um, it's been a great, great run, to use a cliche, for the last 10 plus years, and I want to keep it going. But I also understand my next 10 years might be, I might get into something else. Like in 2018, I ran the New Jersey Marathon on Sunday. I took a couple of days off, and then I started swimming. I never really swam before in any real capacity. And I learned right away that I was a good runner. I was a real bad swimmer, right? So I spent the next the year or so trying to get good in the pool and be able to swim a couple miles at a time and, and build my endurance that way and get better. And, you know, as I get older, it's kind of probably a good thing to take some of that stress off the musculoskeletal system and do a couple of days a week in the pool. And then, in all fairness, when it's time to do a marathon or something serious, then I kind of take that pool time and put it back out on the road. But in the off season, I got to really enjoy just the swimming laps and staring at that black line and, and doing that for a while. So I think I just be open to things that are out there and then, be, you know, be smart about it and know your body, but don't be scared to, to look silly because I looked really silly that first day in the pool, but uh, I got better at it over time. That reminds me when I started doing triathlons, I also very quickly discovered that college track athletes are typically not good swimmers because if they're like me, they just sink like a rock. And I was doing open water swimming in a reservoir and I couldn't swim for more than about a minute without having like stop and rest a little bit. And this was someone, you know, I was running 80 miles a week and I, I couldn't swim for more than a couple minutes at a time. It was very humbling. And, and I do think that that general kind of uh, uh, inclination to explore, to try new activities, different sports, different training strategies can be helpful for your mobility as well. Because, you know, if you're all of a sudden, I'm going to start cycling, I'm going to start swimming, I'm going to start weightlifting, I'm going to start, you know, doing something that's outside of my normal running comfort zone, that's going to require new movements that you hadn't been doing as a runner. And that's going to have great carryover into your injury resilience and your performances too. Right, right. No question. I think we, everyone who listens to this podcast, I'm going to assume loves running as me and you do, right? Um, is it something we want to do every day? Maybe. Is there some chance that if we you know, run on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and lift weights or do something else on Tuesday and Thursday, that'll make us better at running? I think so. I think in our in our world, we've been so beaten on the idea of miles, miles, miles. Now, mileage is important. If you want to run a long race, you got to run a lot of miles at some point, right? I think we both agree on that. But can we make those miles more efficient, stronger, have less injuries while we're running them? and continue to drop our times, even as we get older, by doing things outside of the run, I think we can. I think a lot of it, you know, we put together the best program we could think of in our book, Finish Strong, and just from you know, years and years of experience, people like yourself have figured out running is incredibly important, but there's other things we can do that make running better and more enjoyable and more productive when we're actually doing the miles. Yeah, and you know, I've you're absolutely right that I think when runners think of themselves as runners, it does put blinders on them. And I've gotten into this habit of of calling runners athletes who specialize in running. And it's just semantics. It's just the words that we're using. But I think it's powerful in reframing how we think of ourselves. Because now, if we are athletes who specialize in running, now that means, well, we're going to do drills. We're going to do dynamic flexibility exercises. We're going to do strength training. We might cross train with swimming or cycling or the elliptical or whatever it is. And it just creates a more robust, well-rounded athlete that I think is going to be a better athlete and certainly a better runner. Um, now, Angelo, I did want to ask you about a very specific type of exercise that you have a whole section on in your book, Finish Strong, and those are 
anti-rotation exercises. And, and you say that these are particularly important for endurance runners. Can you talk a little bit about what these exercises are and their benefit to runners? Sure. I think everybody's known for like 20 plus years that the quote unquote core is important in any kind of physical activity. Right? We've, been at, we've beaten it in head with that for 20 plus years now. And we think it absolutely is. So if you want to do your sit-ups, your leg raises, get that six pack looking good for the summer, I'm on board. I get it. I understand why it's important. However, we find that the most neglected part of core training is the idea that when we're either running, riding a bike, or swimming to some extent, the body's urge to rotate and sometimes over-rotate kind of steals energy, right? So if we're trying to move, say, 30 degrees, but our body, body moves even 31 or 32 degrees every time we make a movement, but we do that movement 50,000 times during a run, that's a ton of expended energy that's not getting us anywhere else, right? So our idea is can we start doing activities where instead of just doing your sit-ups, your leg raises, or your knee raises, whatever it might be, we're bracing the core and fighting the urge to rotate in either direction that we don't want it to, right? So if everything's from a basic plank to a plank with a plate drag to doing stuff with a Kaiser machine or a band, you don't have access to one of those. But the idea is that if a, if a force is pulling you to your right, your body might overcompensate and try to pull to the left. Right. So can we train not not going in your direction and fight it, meeting that force that's pulling us out of the position we want to be in with the right amount of force to maintain forward movement and forward momentum? So we start that with very easy exercises, very light band stuff, body weight stuff, and progress to some more weighted stuff as you go through the program. But the idea is that our body, if left to its own devices, sometimes is not very efficient. And one way you kind of fight that efficiency is by training to resist the urge to rotate in a direction that you don't want to go in when your goal is to move straight ahead. Yeah. And I think a lot of runners think about running as an exercise where you are just moving in that, that one plane of motion, that, uh, frontal plane, or am I getting my planes, right? It's either the frontal plane or the sagittal plane. I, I think you're right on frontal and I got me second guessing the two, man. I know. I got to Google this. But anyway, yeah, you, we get this idea that we're only moving straight ahead. But if you actually were to hook up your body to a bunch of sensors, you know, your legs are exerting forces, you know, side to side as well. I mean, that's part of what pronation is, which is a very normal thing that your foot does to help absorb force. But, you know, it does kind of push you over to one side rather than the other. And I think one of the most helpful ideas that was introduced to me a long time ago was this idea that, you know, your body's always trying to sort of collapse on itself and, and go different places that you don't want it to. And by preventing that collapse or really uh, preventing the extra forces working on your body from pulling it in the direction that it wants to go, you can really be a lot more efficient because if you think about it, you know, all your energy should really be going straight ahead. And if you have all this excess movement, then you're being inefficient and your running economy is going to be lower. So this, this idea that anti-rotation exercises is important, uh, rings really true to me. And, and I like that you have, again, this progression, you know, you can start with simple bands, you can start with just some, some body weight movements and then progress from there. You know, Angela, we have been talking about some other sports. We mentioned swimming and cycling. I was just wondering before we wrap up, just I think it'd be interesting conceptually to understand this. What are some of the big differences in the endurance sports when these athletes get into the weight room? So if you have a swimmer, a cyclist and a runner all come into the weight room, what are some of the high level differences in how you're going to approach strength training for these athletes? Okay, great question. The biggest thing with swimmers in general is 
their shoulders take such a beating in the pool. If they're swimming any kind of real, you know, four to 10,000 yards of practice, whatever it might be, plus, you know, weekend swims might be longer. In my opinion, it's, it actually has like an overhead press, right? Can everybody benefit from that? Sure. Is it the best exercise for somebody who just swam 7,000 yards? Probably not, right? So what we did in the book is we broke the exercise. We did top 10 exercises for each discipline, right? So top 10 exercises for swimmers, cyclists, uh, swimmer, swimmers, runners, cyclists, and triathletes. And the idea is this. If you're pressed for time, in my, my opinion on strength and conditioning is the human body is the human body. About 80% of what we do in a weight room is going to benefit everybody, right? I think your, your core exercises are good for everybody. Your squats, your lunges, your presses, your pulls. But that 20% on top is going to be where we specialize and really kind of meet the athlete where they are in their sport and quote unquote do sports specific training, right? And we kind of figured out if you're a runner and you're pressed for time, these are the 10 exercises that if you only have time to get a couple in, you pick out of this list and decide which are the most important. Swimmers, you move to these, these 10. Uh, cyclists move over to these 10, right? So the idea is that can you kind of cyclists definitely get something out of the swimmer list? A hundred percent. But if you're, you're crushed for time and can't do everything, these are kind of your quote unquote meat and potato exercises you want to get in every day, right? Um, another change you might, another like, kind of specification you might see where swimmer shoulders tend to be really beaten up in general. And you probably don't need to go any harder at them in the weight room, particularly when they're swimming a lot. Now, if it's their off season, you can maybe try to really make some progress and get those shoulders bigger and stronger, but maybe not during the bulk of their season when they're getting ready for conference championships, whatever it might be. Um, with, the, with, with cyclists, we're going to look at controlling the bike. Right. Can we do some upper body things, some forearm things, some shoulder girdle things that'll keep them able to control maybe a mountain bike on a trail or make a hairpin turn on a street course or just kind of be in good body position the whole time they're on the bike, which could be hours and hours on end. Right. So that goes down to their core, their shoulder girdle, a little bit of their, their anterior musculature on their, on their chest and abs. But can we make them stay in the right position the whole time? And then the runners we kind of talked about already, but it's kind of addressing that posterior chain addressing the, those sweeping generalization upper body weaknesses and then hip flexor mobility and just kind of kind of making the runner an overall more efficient, durable person that can make her point A to point B efficiently and injury free. But I think you got to know the sports a little bit and realize what what parts of the body are overtrained by the sport. And when the person's really doing a lot of endurance training, pull back in those areas a little bit with the idea that when they're in their off season, we got to hit those areas a little harder and make them stronger for next year. I love this. When I start getting on my road bike a little bit more, when the weather's better here in Colorado, I'm going to be taking some of this uh, advice to heart as I design some strength training around that. Cause I, like you, I've gotten into another sport and that is cycling. And I find it is fascinating to me in some of the same ways that running is really interesting to me. I just like to go fast. I've found out. And, uh, I think some of those exercises and considerations are important. Uh, Angelo, this has been so interesting for me and, and I, I love your college experience because I feel like that time period was so important for my fundamental understanding of the sport. And I wish everyone had that experience that they could have a set of coaches and, and go through the training process and really participate in the sport of running in that environment. I think it's, it's really beneficial. Like real quick, actually one of the best things about running to me is that even if you didn't run in college like me, I was not a college runner at all. I was the complete opposite. It's one of the few sports you could jump in in your 30s or 40s and still be really successful at, right? And still have as good a time running a marathon as someone who's breaking a world record. And that's really rare, right? Like if you were if you were a high-level basketball player when you were a kid, 
You can't go play an NBA game when you're 50, right? But you can't run the New York City Marathon. That's what I think is so beautiful about what we choose to do is that it's never too late, right? If you're complete sedentary, you might be an elite break a world record type runner when you're 35, but you might break your world record. You're going to break set a PR and, and get to be a part of this great community we're a part of. And, you know, guys like us, we connected across the country today with very similar training ideas, right? Um, over the love of this sport that, that's given us a whole lot. And I hope this book is a way I can give back a little bit to this community that I just love. Angela, are you telling me that my dream of being an Olympic gymnast is probably not going to come true these days? I don't want to be the guy to burst your bubble, but you might want to think about another path at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think you can get into gymnastics as a 38-year-old. <laughs> no, All right, man. Angelo, this has been wonderful. Your book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, is out now. I highly suggest everyone check it out. I'm going to have a link to it from Strength Running in the show notes. And are you online somewhere if folks want to connect with you? Uh, yeah, the, if you have a specific question, hit me over my email, which is angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. And then Instagram for the book is at finish underscore strong book. It's uh, everything on a podcast like this. You'll know about it from that IG. We cover New Jersey's running scene a little bit, and we put up our workouts on the weekend. If we do something we think is really cool, we'll let you guys know about it. So that's at finish underscore strong underscore book on Instagram. Great. I'm going to include links to that as well in the show notes. Angelo, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work with the podcast. And there it is, my friends. Don't forget to catch Angelo's book, Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, and stay tuned for Strength Running's newest strength program coming out next week. Now, if you enjoy the Strength Running Podcast, you can support us by supporting our sponsors. I believe in these companies. They help me publish all of these episodes, and they're doing great work for the running community. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years, and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find, founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. They have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that helps you understand your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones like cortisol to testosterone and vitamin D. And they can all help you figure out if you're overtraining or if you're optimally training, or if you just have a health issue that might be affecting your running. But the best part is that they give you personalized optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers and a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and the process is simple, it's easy, and it's very eye-opening, especially if you haven't done a deep dive on your biomarkers yet. Just a few weeks ago, I learned that my cortisol levels are elevated, as well as having low vitamin D. So now I know what I need to address so I can keep my health moving forward. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. You can see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the different purchases you can make for your running, this one can actually improve your performances. It's a wonderful opportunity. You can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. Finally, a huge thank you to our newest sponsor, Roll Recovery. You can learn more at rollrecovery.com. I am so glad that I'm able to become more involved with this company. They're a local company to me with headquarters in Boulder, Colorado, and they were started by pro runner Adriana Nelson with her husband, Jeremy, literally in their garage. 
and they're now doing great work supporting the running scene here in Colorado. Roll Recovery makes the best recovery tools that I've personally ever used. I'm very confident saying that. With durable materials that last a lifetime and very unique products. I have the R8 Plus, the R4 Body Roller, and the R3 Foot Roller. I've also featured my Roll Recovery Body Roller in a recent video on YouTube because of its unique shape and how helpful it is for massaging around the IT band. The roller has this notched groove in the middle of it, helping you massage around the IT band without directly aggravating it. And the R3 foot roller is my new favorite toy to keep under my desk, so I can roll out any tightness while I'm recording these podcast episodes. And if you haven't checked out the R8 Plus, it's a massage tool that's unlike anything that you've probably seen before. It's a deep tissue massager, and it's FDA approved as a medical device. So you can use your flexible spending account or health savings account, just confirm with your health insurance. And it uses springs to give you a more firm massage, but there's a dial, so you can customize it to whatever pressure that you prefer. And unlike a traditional foam roller, you don't have to flail around on the ground to use it. Thank you, Roll Recovery, for these very unique tools. I'm using them almost every day, and I do feel like my muscles are more supple and ready for running. See for yourself at rollrecovery.com. All right, that's our show for this week. I really appreciate you listening, subscribing to the show, and reviewing it in Apple Music. We'll be in touch soon. 